0: Once again, we take up our study of the book of Ephesians. We started it back in April, and we are continuing through. And I could not have picked a better passage to begin the new year with if I were just doing it in a topical way. Uh, This would be a great passage. Uh, This is where we are, though, by God's providence, and it is a wonderful encouragement to all of us at the start of a new year. So, blessed New Year's to you all. It's 2021 uh, I was born in 1971, so this is my 50th year into this, and I remember uh, every 10 years some big event. When I was 10 years old in 1981, I remember making the traveling soccer team for the first time, which was big for me at that time, and then uh, in 19, uh, that was 81, and 91, right thereabouts is when I met Sherry, uh, a monumental event to say the very least. 2001, we had our second child, that was also the year of 9-11, so I remember that. And then 2011, uh, not too many years ago, I remember passing into thinking in terms of my 40th year, and here we are 50th, and the point is time cannot be rolled back. can't be stretched, can't be stopped, it keeps moving. And that is a key part of the passage before us, the encouragement, the exhortation that Paul gives us. There's much more than that, but if we all think about time and just how fast it moves and how you can't stop it, and here we are, 2021. Well, at the cusp of a new year, let's go to God's Word. These will be our memory verses for the year. Works out perfectly. Um, you'll find these to be uh, edifying and encouraging. I'm asking everybody to commit them to memory over the course of the next few months and have them in your memory throughout the year. And I'll put some publications out, be listed in different places. So even if you just read it that many times, you'll probably remember these great verses. Maybe you know them already. Let's go now to God's Word as we see this great instruction to his church, to Christians for navigating this world in which we live, these times in which we find ourselves. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Ephesians five fifteen through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, reverence for christ let's bow together as i lead us in prayer father in heaven please give us your spirit's help to believe to understand and to apply your holy word we are in constant need of your guidance your word is truth so please sanctify us by your truth as we enter a new calendar year may we be ever more appreciative of the necessity of your word for navigating this life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first snowfall of the year here in Kansas always brings this typical situation at our household. If Sherry doesn't get out early enough to start shoveling, it starts to pile up pretty fast. And so if when I finally get out there, I realize it's too late, I can't do anything because it's already frozen over. And so the section that goes from where she parks the car to where I park the car is always laden with thick ice. And I go out there for a little bit and try to chisel at it and realize, no big deal, it's Kansas, it's going to be melted in a couple days. Well, that was all right back when I was 30 and I fell on the ice. When I fall on the ice now, it takes days to recover from the pain that it inflicts. You know what I mean. Walking on ice now is not what it used to be. You probably fell a lot when you were a kid. You just don't remember it because it didn't stay with you the same way it does now. So when you see ice or an uneven surface that looks slippery, you go slow. You automatically think to yourself, this won't end well if I go fast. So you navigate step by step. Consider the unevenness of it, how slippery it is. You put a little bit of weight on your first foot, but not as much as you normally would. Everything about it is just more careful because you know that falling could be, could be terrible, It could hurt. The passage here uses the metaphor that Paul's been using through Ephesians, walking. This is to describe the life we live, the behavior we have, the way we conduct ourselves. The spiritual walk is equal to our walk in this life. So walk carefully is what the passage says. Envision the carefulness that you uh, put into the walk to your car right now or back into your house in this time of the year, throughout the winter. Think of this as a metaphor for life and how we have to walk very carefully. If you look at the passage before us, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. So look at every step, see what's there. Not as unwise, but wise. There's a foolish way in which you can walk. You could just plow right out ahead without paying attention. Now when you think about the Bible on the whole, All the authors of Scripture, whenever they were writing, were writing in times that were perilous for them as believers. Moses, writing those first few books of the Bible, wrote of people who lived in perilous times. He wrote about the time of Noah, when Noah had to endure the mocking and really being ostracized by the people of earth at that time for what he was called to do. Moses wrote about the patriarchs. Each of them had brushes with the world around them. They had the issues of their own sin. It was a difficult navigating for them in the world they lived. This is true for Moses himself when he finds himself called to lead the people out of Egypt where this nation was keeping them captive and wanted to kill them when they tried to escape. There have always been perilous times for the people of God. And Paul writes to an early church who were under great duress. But I would submit that every era of Christianity has suffered from being in perilous times, in evil days. And we may feel that way now. Certainly brothers and sisters of ours who are in other places in the world right now, take Nigerian brothers and sisters right now. There are many other countries I could use as an example. But that's a terrifying place to live right now if you're a believer. Uh, Evil days for them, very evil days. And we may sense some of that in our own uh, perspective here as well. It's an evil time to live. Why? Well, the combination of the world we live in since the fall is wrought with evil, opposition to God, challenge to God all the time. But we also have our own sin that we deal with on a regular basis. Even as believers, it's difficult to see that sin killed in our lives. It creeps up. We've got our own flesh we deal with. And of course the devil is roaming around seeking whoever he can devour. So we have the world, we have our own flesh, we have the devil. Evil days, It's always a relevant statement, this side of glory. And this passage is for us to navigate these evil days. Couldn't be more relevant for the first Sunday of a new year than to hear this message from these verses in Ephesians. God's word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. How might you and I navigate these evil days? Well, there are three main ways you see it come out of the text. There's complexities or there's layers to it, but very, very clearly, first of all, God gives us his word. We are to understand his will, his revealed will, what he's told us is true about ourselves and the world around us. So first and foremost, he gives us his word. But connected to his word, not disconnected, you have to have it with it, is The help of the Holy Spirit to understand and apply the word, to live according to God's will. And we're given his people, a people who are filled with the spirit like we are because of God's grace that we can fellowship with and gain strength from, worship God in the assembly of. God's word, his spirit, and his people are the three main ways we navigate evil times. And this is exactly what Paul says in so many words in these verses that we have before us. Look with me first as we see God's word as our guide. God gives us his word. This is the foundation of it all. We can't go from this place and take careful steps without perspective from his word. Now the whole verse speaks to this when you see to verse 17, where you have to know or understand what the will of the Lord is. We understand what the will of the Lord is through his word. Verses 15 and 16 build to that climax. I'm telling you ahead of time so we can see an example on display already. His word is our guide. What does it tell us in verse 15 and 16? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So it's going to tell us or exhort us to use wisdom. Wisdom comes from his word, the will of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. These are the synonymous phrases for what he's revealed to us, that we have to have revealed to us. But it says make best use use of the time. In other words, it would be foolish to waste time. It would be foolish to do things uh, that take away from the good things God would call us to. Now, it doesn't mean we can't spend our time doing fun things or things that that let off steam or however you want to put it. It's when we're overtaken with things that are waste of time. That's the problem. So it's the start of a new year and we think of what the Word says to us. The Word says to us, use your time very carefully. Walk in wisdom, Paul says especially because the times are so treacherous. Now, what does it mean to walk unwisely? Well, walking unwisely describes living in ignorance about the perils around us, the perils we're alerted to because of God's Word. Walking unwisely has to do with foolish walking. Wise, on the other hand, that has to do with seeing the world through the lens of God's perspective. Wisdom comes from God, and we have to have it, and His Word gives it. So the first thing we need for navigating evil times is God's wisdom. We need his word. This is what guides us. Unwise means we rely on our own understanding. We don't check with God's perspective. Without reference to God's perspective, we move on and try to navigate or negotiate the difficulties. We may not even know the difficulties are there if we're not in connection with his word. Wise means looking to God for perspective and guidance. This is the very uh, first piece or the very first thing we need as we navigate evil times. And the first bit of wisdom making the best use of time. Time is one of the great resources of this life that I think we take for granted too often. We think of other resources God gives us, but what is more precious than time? It's very fleeting, for sure. It's limited for every one of us. Some have more, some have less, but we're given a certain amount of time. It can't be stopped, it's a precious commodity like no other commodities. Among the wisest of all things you can do is make the best use of the time that you have because evil days are marked with wasteful pursuits, the waste of time. Walk wisely, pay attention, there's not much time. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's the key to this first point. To be able to walk wisely, know how to spend your time, you have to have perspective from his word. Really, whatever you spend the most time doing, it has the most likelihood, apart from the supernatural element we'll see in a moment. But this is just true of anything. So if you spend all your time watching Netflix or all your time playing video games or all your time talking or texting or, or uh, reading or watching YouTube or all the things we fill our time with, that can be done fine in moderation. I mean, everyone needs a dose of the Mandalorian every once in a while. That's fine. But when we're, all we're doing is these things, what will happen is we will start thinking like the things we're watching or engaging in to some degree. It might be not thinking at all. That's a problem in itself. So just we have to be realistic. Where we spend our time will, in many ways, shape how we view everything else. So, in that light, just seek to have a good dose of the place we'll get the most wisdom. Now, the beauty of the Word of God is you could spend a very little bit of time in it, and it'll have a great effect. I'm not saying don't spend a lot of time, but I have great confidence in the power of the Word and the Spirit of the, the Lord. If we would, just, would devote a certain amount of time in reading and soaking our minds in the water of the Word, you'd be surprised at how much that helps us navigate all the other things we're seeing, interpreting, walking through. So this first step for navigating is having the wisdom of God. And that will help with everything else we do. It will even help us know how to spend that time, how to take in the things we take in, how to put out the things we put out. This comes first from the guide of God's Word. Not too long ago, we went through this series with Pastor Nathan in Proverbs, which was a consistent reminder of applying the wisdom of God to our lives. Wisdom was personified in that book, you remember, like a woman crying out. Wisdom cries out in the street. Later in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is where knowledge and understanding come together. Notice our passage doesn't say know what the will of the Lord is. That's a different Greek word. The word here is understand what the will of the Lord is. That's another level from knowledge. It's not just knowing facts. It's seeing how those facts work themselves out in our life and in our living. How they're applied. That's what understanding what the will of the Lord is. Yes, what it says, what is true, but also what to do in light of it. That's understanding the will of the Lord. That's understanding what his word says. Not just for the sake of understanding what it communicates, but so that it really affects or shapes the life we're living. This is the way God's word is our guide. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to a people who are very secularized. They had all sorts of competing philosophies and ideologies in that place. It was a very uh, metropolitan place, and it was the end thing to new, have the newest religious fad or philosophical fad, whatever it might be. Enlightenment was what they were about all the time. So Paul warned Christians, if you seek God's wisdom, which is what you ought to do, that's how you'll navigate the world, recognize how the world will see this wisdom. He says to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews, how can you preach a crucified king? And folly to the Gentiles, that's silly to the pagans. What do you mean, a crucified Savior? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ is the centerpiece of the wisdom of God, of the word of God, and we are people of Christ. This is who we are about. He is our priority. But Paul does warn us, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So don't be swayed or discouraged when what you believe is put down, because it's the wisdom of God. And unless God grants the wisdom, we would be in the same place as the Greeks and the Jews who thought it was both foolish and a stumbling block. Verse 17 of our passage, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's a great memory verse for 2021, this text. God's word is your guide, but second, and in connection, not disconnected. You can't separate these three in this passage. They're woven together. God's word is your guide and God's spirit is your helper. The spirit of God is the one who you need for understanding and application, for walking in this way of wisdom. The word of God was written by the spirit of God. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit for spiritual life and understanding. The reason why the the gospel message is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Greeks is because they don't have the Spirit of God enlivening them, quickening them, so they recognize their problem of spiritual death and need for spiritual life in Christ. Only Christ gives that through his, and he gives it through his Spirit. We've been through that in the opening chapters of Ephesians. It's the work of God. He makes us alive together with Christ, and he does this regeneration through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has an ongoing ministry in our life. He has the first ministry of making us alive to Christ. This is that first moment being sealed in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, when we first believed. But now, the admonition or the imperative is that we be filled with the Spirit, who is our helper. This is a command that you be filled with the Spirit, and it's not something, it's a present and an ongoing action, meaning it has to happen over and over again. I'm not not talking about losing your salvation, getting it back. Losing, that's not what it means. It's for believers, the children of God. You're enabled to say, Abba, Father, because of the Spirit in you. But you're going to need continual strengthening by the Spirit to walk according to God's Word. So we have to go for God's Spirit's filling on a regular basis, and it's connected directly to His Word. Now, there's an interesting metaphor used here that is vivid to us even in 2021. But there's specific reference to the original audience. In those times, they had temple worship where the pagans would go to to do their, their all manner of worship. And it was awful, uh, immoral stuff that they would do in these temples. We know that from records. It's 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 well known, widespread understanding about what they did. And one of the things they did was use different substances to get themselves drunk or high, so they would uh, have no inhibitions. They would do all the things that the pagan priests would tell them to do, um, or it could just be a matter of escape. Uh, you were in the '70s. I mean, people would take hallucinogenic drugs to kind of have a spiritual experience. They would say people even still talk that way about drugs today. And what Paul does is take this well-known practice and he uses it to compare it to what the Holy Spirit will actually do for us. Notice the passage in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And debauchery just means anything you'll do when you have no more inhibitions, when your mind is, is controlled by something else, all manner of stuff you might do, evil stuff, sinful stuff. So it comes from losing control And wine uh, or being drunk is a picture of this. He says, don't let wine fill you or control you. Don't get drunk with wine. Instead, let the Spirit of God control you. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you think about how we describe drunkenness, or someone gets pulled over for driving, what? Under the influence. So don't be under the influence of these things. Be under the influence of of God's Spirit instead. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. To be drunk is actually to depress one's senses so you do things you wouldn't normally do. Alcohol is not actually a stimulant. I was reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached on this passage, was a a medical doctor, and he makes the point that people often think that things like alcohol are stimulants. They make you do things. They make you braver. They're actually not. They're They're things that depress your senses so that you don't have the inhibitions. And it might be that you do some really stupid stuff, but it's not because it's stimulating you to something. It's depressing the things that would normally tell you this is not smart. Whereas the Spirit of God described the way he is in the Bible is clearly a stimulant to our Christian walk, the enabler for us to do what God would call us to do, even though it's tough, even though it's difficult. In fact, when you read Paul talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry, in Galatians, in more detail, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. He stimulates us to do those things. Gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Being filled with the Holy Spirit goes hand in hand with his revealed will. The Spirit works together with his word, and that's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a feeling you get. It's not, uh, it's not some special experience you get. It's by walking in his word, his spirit always attends his word, and he helps you and I with the ability to see it's true and live it out. This is what being sp- filled with the spirit means. James Boyce put it this way. Being filled with the spirit refers to our being so under the Holy Spirit's control and leading that our thought and life are entirely taken up with Christ, to whom it is the spirit's chief responsibility to bear witness. It's the Spirit's work to make us more Christ-like. Earlier in this letter, Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. The opposite of grieving the Holy Spirit is being filled with the Holy Spirit. John Stott says so wisely, "...the fullness, or the filling of the Spirit, is not a once-for-all experience which we can never lose, but a privilege to be renewed continuously by continuously believing in obedient appropriation." We've been sealed with the Spirit once and for all, Stott notes. We need to be filled with the Spirit and to go on being filled every day in every moment of the day. I was doing a comparison, a comparison study between what Paul says about the same stuff in Colossians. The two books are almost completely parallel with different phraseology in different places. But he's compelling the Colossians the same way he Ephesians. Now, I want you to hear when I read Ephesians and when I read Colossians – Pay close attention to a synonymous sentence, and you'll notice how we are filled with the Spirit primarily. In Ephesians, it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks. Now listen to Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving. Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The key to being filled with the Spirit is the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And the Word dwelling in us richly has to be a supernatural activity of the Spirit. So you you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit apart from God's Word. There's no way. I don't mean you always have your Bible open to reading and the Spirit fills you. As you come to know the Word, as you memorize just these verses, the Lord will use those verses to shape your thinking and help you walk wisely in this world. We need the Word as our guide, and we need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as our helper, the one who will help us in this regard. Now take verse 17 and 18 together. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Understand the Word, be filled with the Spirit. The Word and Spirit shapes our mind and our thinking, and the Holy Spirit does something else that unfolds in the rest of the passage that gives us the third thing we need, if you will, for navigating evil times. As the Word and the Spirit work in our hearts as believers, individual believers, we're compelled to worship God. We're compelled to speak of God, to share who he is and how he informs our life in our existence. The spirit gives us wisdom, gives us worship, gives us praise in our hearts. And so how do we navigate these days? God's word as our guide. God's spirit as our helper. And God's people, other spirit-filled people, God's people as your communion. This is where you get this encouragement, this mutual encouragement that you need to go on, with navigating these evil days. God's people are your communion by God's appointment. The thrust of God's word and spirit is the person of Christ. We are Christ followers, Christians. We are filled with God's spirit. That's the way we are Christians. We're united to Christ in his finished work. We are in Christ. This is all the bedrock of Ephesians 1 through 4. Now we come to chapter 5 and it's how we live it all out. And we are placed in communion with one another. So the power of his word, guiding, with the spirit helping, we cannot help but want to come together with others who have been redeemed in the same way, made the children of God by the spirit of God, and able to say, Abba, Father. We come together with other like-minded, like-souled individuals so we can have communion with each other, helping us to be in communion with our Savior as the body of Christ here appointed by God. The redeemed of God love his word, are indwelt by his spirit, and have an unusual supernatural bond. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, what's the result of being filled with the Spirit? in working towards understanding the will of the Lord. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. One of the expressions that will happen when you are growing in His Word and in His Spirit is you want to talk with one another about what you're learning about God. So the first phrase, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, um, these, were the, these were expressions of understanding about God's character that were spoken and sung to one another. Now, the book of Psalms is the ultimate picture of this. This is the book of, of the church, and it's a description of our worship of the God who we worship. It describes his attributes, who he is, what he does, tells us what we might say to him when we're in certain situations, corporately and individually. It just tells us who God is, who we are, and how we should talk to God and sing to God. It's the ultimate picture of how we should model our worship or our discussions. Uh, But here there's three different terms and there are three different genres even. We're addressing, we're speaking to one another in terms of the truths of these psalms or what these psalms say, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's two imperatives. Address or speak with one another in these terms and sing. So talk with one another, fellowship with one another, interact with one another, have communion with one another, and sing together unto the Lord. Worship the Lord. Come together as a community. Commune with one another. We just have a bond together. We are very different people with different hobbies and habits. But there's something that's brought us all here. And yes, there's some commonalities in America. You can go to churches that, you know, the style fits you better and so forth and so on. But the style isn't what defines us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It's the knowledge we have that we've been rescued from our sin unto life. That completely gives us a different level with one another. So if we took each of us out and put us in some other big crowd, we should be able to find each other and we would have this commonality and it would be a joyous commonality, a communion with one another. I married into uh, Sherry's family, which is a large family with a lot of cousins, and every year there would be this Christmas gathering in a large, it would be a cleared out barn basically. Uh, with all the equipment, the farm equipment out and all our cousins would come in and we would go into this place and have a Christmas gathering. I always felt out of place for the first 10 or 15 years because as a relative city slicker compared to everybody else there, they had fun kind of making fun of me. I was a little bit of the, and I don't get me wrong, I love it, I played into it. I was kind of the court jester, you know, making jokes about, oh, big tractor, you know, and they'd laugh at how I didn't know what a tractor was. And it would be fun for the first 15 years. Then it kind of got old. And so after that, I'm like, i got to talk about something else about what I don't know about farming. And so I'd look around and I found one of her cousins who likes hunting just the way I like hunting. And for all the ways we are different, we are on the same wavelength with this. In fact, we text each other throughout the year about what we're seeing in our scouting or what our plans are, when we're going to get out, what we're shooting, what we're missing, all that stuff. And so when I get there, there's some niceties that are exchanged, a couple hugs of the ants that I don't know very well, and then I find Wes. And we sit down and talk for the next couple hours until I'm told otherwise about hunting. Because we just connect on that level. We find each other. And that's nothing compared to what you and I have. If we were across a crowded room and we saw each other after a certain amount of hours went by, whatever the activities of that room were, they weren't about ultimate things. They may have been fine, but they weren't ultimate things. You and I would find each other and we would talk about Christ in some fashion. Or we'd have some connection in Christ that knew we were bonded together. This is the communion we have. This is why we come together. This is what we need to navigate these evil times. He's given us his word to guide us, his spirit to help us, and his people to commune with so that we're strengthened for the walks we take. And when someone falls on the ice, you've got people that are going to help pick you up and nurse you back to health if necessary. That's the beauty of what he's given us in this communion. In our confession that I like to refer to regularly, hopefully to whet your appetites a little to check it more because it's excellent in what it explains about the Bible's teaching. In the 26th chapter, it's about the communion of the saints. Listen to what it says. All saints, Christians, that are united to Jesus Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him, Jesus, in his graces, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, and his glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. That's what it means to be Part of this communion, this fellowship, this community, this family. It says further: saints by profession are bound, they need to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in the performing of such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. There's just some things you cannot get apart from the body of Christ. In uh, really long-standing growth that works itself out and has impact. On yourself and the world, it's cultivated in the body of Christ together. This is where sometimes, as we rub up against each other, we have to step back and talk about things, or work things through, or celebrate things together. Be encouraged by our unity of mind and thought on these in these regards. Verse twenty of our passage: Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This will promote a thankfulness that we all can sense, that we all feel, that we know we're grateful for what we've been given in Christ and everything else. And ultimately, the glory goes to Christ, and we do this in connection with one another. And look closely at verse 21. I think this is probably the most important part of this third point. All of this moves towards a humility that we share towards one another. Submitting to one another... Why? Just because? Out of reverence for Christ. The reason, the reason we put other people's considerations before our own is for the glory of Christ. Now this is not fringe. This is not something that is just a topic taken out and just kind of discussed on the side. This is a central piece to what Jesus desires for the church. Understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord as it relates to the people of God and their communion together? Well, when he was ready to go to the cross, two major events occurred where Jesus cements his will for us. First is John 13. In John 13, he takes off his outer garments, gets down, and washes the feet of his disciples. Clearly, Jesus is the master. Yet he's washing their dirty feet. Not one set, 12 sets of dirty, nasty feet. And the master gets down and washes all their feet. What, a minute apiece! It's a long time to wash all those feet. What, a, what an illustration of what the will of the Lord is for us. To understand the will of the Lord, how we relate. It says in John 13, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. When he was done. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. There are lots of tough passages in the Bible. God's will about what he wants us to do with each other is not a difficult one. That's not a hard passage. You don't have to do a long chapter study for those who've been in my class. You don't have to do a long chapter study to figure out God's will here. So when it says in our passage that we're looking at today, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, we can immediately go to the picture that Jesus gives us. That means putting others before ourselves. In John 17, just four chapters after he washes their feet, he's praying to God about what will happen after he dies and he raises again, the ultimate victory, what will happen? Well, his disciples will become apostles, but what about those who will come to faith in him through the disciples. He prays specifically in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of God's communion of the saints will display to people the credibility of the gospel we say has saved us. It's that important to pursue this. Finally, this word on this this component of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When Paul writes to the Philippians, you can see by now already, it's not a a fringe doctrine, it's a a pervasive one. He uses Christ as the ultimate example of how we ought to treat one another. He says if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How do we do this? How do we have this unity? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hoarded or put over. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Ephesians 5.21, which is the culmination of this short section, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is a wonderful picture for us in how we interact with one another in this communion. As we move about today, I know we'll be mindful of the icy surfaces, especially after everything I just said here. They'll come and go these days throughout the winter. Be careful how you walk out there. Don't be foolish. Likewise, these are evil days. Tough times through which to steer. This is true for the people of God. As we together begin a new year, this passage speaks very helpfully. Because we have God's word, we have his spirit, and we have his people. Let's pray. Lord, we are aware of the perils around us We know there are many challenges to our fellowship with you. Lord, in light of your Word's instruction that we've just read here and we see is throughout your Word, please give us wisdom by your Word. And by your Holy Spirit's ministry, produce love and devotion for Christ in each of us. Give us passion for your Word and a commitment to be in fellowship with other believers this new year. So many things conspire against our growth in your grace. So we are asking for you to help us to live according to what we have just read and studied. Out of reverence for Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.